65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Good afternoon. Today we are headed to Waupon and Green Bay as we discuss Wisconsin's dire prison guard shortage with New York Times reporter Mario Coran. And it's the beginning of Public Schools Week. We will hear, hear from Dr. Jill Underly on what the themes of this week are and talk the status of Wisconsin schools as we approach four years since COVID shut everything down. My guest co-host today is my dear friend, Steve Scafidi. How are you? I love that deer in there, by the way. You are my dear friend. I'm a big fan of public schools. I went to a religious school. I don't have a lot of nice things to say. Did you have nuns? I had the meanest nuns that have ever been. How were your knuckles? Are they still hurting? It's the ears, the head. They whack you with rulers. It was, you know, nothing against nuns. And if you're a sister, thanks for the good work. But uh, it wasn't a good experience. Public schools, however, thrived. So you, you ended up switching. You did both. Yeah. My parents realized pretty quickly that I wasn't being taught the right way. Okay. And I went and I excelled in public schools. And I, I still remember all my teachers' names. And, and some of the, my favorite teachers changed my life. Did your girls go to public school? They did. All right. Oak so Creek School System. So we're yeah. a fan. Fans of I'm public, big public fan. schools. I mean, I'm fan. also a fan of public schools. I went to both. I went to a parochial elementary school and then switched to public middle school, public high school. And I think I got a good foundation at the the private elementary school, but I excelled when I got to public school. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with religious schools. There's some great ones, but there's some that, aren't, that weren't so great. And just by luck and happenstance, I was watching a, a Netflix series about one that wasn't so great back in the 1960s in Baltimore, which I'll, I'll probably tell you off the show. All right. Sounds good. Well, a reminder, we have a short show today because the Brewers are coming up yes. in an hour Real at baseball. 2 p.m. Sort Real of. baseball. It's back. Yes. Are you excited about baseball? I am excited about baseball. Will you wear a Brewers cap on the air? I don't own a... Oh, I do own a Brewers cap. I, wear a, I own a Miller Park hat. I would wear that on oh, air. Oh, vintage. Mm. All right. When we come back, if you've been seeing more and more headlines about Wisconsin's prisons lately, it's because there is a major crisis that's been happening over a decade. It's been a decade in the making. And Mario Coran joins us to talk about how our prisons became so short-staffed. And uh, there were times that there was only 10 guards for 900 inmates. It's nuts. And I talked to my good friend, Ron Bishop, the mayor of Wapani, because, yeah, there, there's staffing issues here. It's, 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 a, it's a great read as far as the story he published earlier this month, but it is brutal in some parts to see what's been going on across our state. So this is Spanning the State on WTMJ. That's coming up next. Welcome back to Spanning the State on WTMJ. I am Kristen Bry, along here with Steve Scafidi. And we're in the second week of a brand new show. Yeah. How's it going? It's going great. Good. We're going going just swimmingly. And one of the segments I'm excited to bring to the show, one of the more fun segments, is Wisconsin in the Wild, where we talk about when Wisconsin makes national headlines or the amazing race. We're going to have Wisconsin contestants. uh, Farmer finds a wife. There's Wisconsin contenders. You know, whenever Wisconsin makes it into wider national headlines. Uh, but this story is not quite <laughs> no. what I had in mind as far as fitting into that segment. But earlier this month, Wisconsin did make the New York Times with Mario Coran's investigation of the dire situation of the 10-year-plus staffing shortage in Wisconsin's prison, prisons. And Mario's here. Thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. First, congratulations on the piece. It was uh, 
it was brutal, which is hard to it's hard to read, but it's so important. And it was, I thought, moving as far as laying out the timeline of how we got here. So before we get to that, can you paint the picture for what the situation looks like right now? Yeah. So I think um, the simplest way to say it is the there's there's simply not enough uh, correctional officers, not enough guards to uh, safeguard the people that we have in state prisons in Wisconsin. Um, and so this problem became pretty acute around the start of COVID, um, but it has since accelerated um, and really to kind of jump to the point and jump to what's happening today is the approach that the state has taken to to deal with the staffing shortages to simply lock down a number of prisons, um, keeping these are men's prisons, keeping men in their cell, um, you know, for for most of the day, round the clock, um, a lot of the a lot of the rights and the privileges that they've had until until now, um, including timely access to medical care, um, outdoor time, family visits, have been sort of suspended. And so the quality, uh, sort of the conditions that um, men are, are 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 forced to endure day after day have been going on for uh, a year now. Some of these conditions actually mimic solitary confinement. They they can't get out. There's there's you know situations with rodents and hygiene. I get the shorting shortage part of this, the staffing issues. But whenever you talk about prisons, there's the the public sentiment that they're prisoners. Why do we care about that? And how do how do they wrangle that public perception issue? Um, well, you know there. I think that 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 the, there certainly is that public perception, and that comes in. You know, I hear that every day, and a lot of the feedback that I'm getting. Um, you know, I I don't know if they have to to go too far into it to to be able to show what the outcome has been. I mean, there hasn't been a, these conditions have been continually, gradually getting worse in recent years. There's been, I think, until recently, very little press scrutiny. Um, they haven't really. Uh, I'm talking about government officials, prison officials, haven't really had to account for that publicly until this past year. So they haven't had. A, they haven't done a lot of work to really square that. I guess is what I'm saying. And so, beyond, there's conditions of the actual having to be confined into their cells. There's the actual facilities themselves. Like we said, there's a rodent problem. What are we talking about as far as what the ratios are? We said in the headline of the piece is 10 to 900, 10 guards to 900 guards. But Steve, you said you ha- you know someone who is a social worker because it's not just the guards, right? It's also staffing for medical staff, social workers. I talked to one in Waupun. I was up there last summer doing a kind of a city tour. and I, was, I met the mayor and then I met a social worker who worked at one of the prisons there. And she said each social worker had like 100 clients, prisoners, there's no way they can handle that workload, which means essentially the work's not getting done. And for someone who actually sort of understands the prison system and the and the the, the pitfalls of doing things like we're not doing here, there's a, there's ramifications for this. They're not getting help. They're not getting educated. They're not getting their minds. That's why I mentioned the solitary confinement piece. Their minds are not being sharpened so they can actually succeed once they get out of prison. Which surprise, surprise, most of these people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I want to come back to that because that is something that uh, national experts have told me from from the ACLU that, you know, for all for all intents and purposes, these conditions do really mimic solitary confinement. When you're talking about not being able to see your family for months on end, uh, for for no opportunity to just get out of the cell and and have enrichments of opportunities, so so that that correlation certainly is there. Uh, when we're talking about the the ratios. You know, we have on paper what the staffing ratio should look like, and um, 
you know, those, I guess, are helpful for understanding which prisons are, are most understaffed. But they don't give us a great idea for showing what it looks like on a day-to-day basis, how many people are actually there for a shift and how many people aren't, how many people they have to actually operate a, uh, a prison. I mean, we have uh, testimony from correctional officers as they were pleading with lawmakers for more, for more funding back in 2021, saying, hey, look, there's nights at Wapan where we have ten a staff of 10 people responsible for overseeing more than 900 inmates. And... You know, there there is just uh, the opportunities are rife for emergencies that that nobody can respond to dangerous situations. So how did we get here? You in the piece, you you lay out the timeline. This is over 10 years in the making. So kind of what were the main plot points as far as where we are today? Yeah, um, to to to. I guess try to put it at a to, to try to summarize it. Really, we see um, the very early stages of this. As you said, it's a decades-long problem, but we see the very early stages of this uh, around 2011 when we see Act 10 get put into place. And you know, for those who don't know, I'm pretty sure most in Wisconsin do. But for those who don't know, this was really um, a landmark law that um, really gutted most uh, uh, most benefits. The really Public down, unions. Public yeah, public unions. unions. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Um, and so we start to see guys, uh, men and women, leaving the leaving the force, leaving the Department of Corrections pretty quickly then. Um, and that is the very beginning of sort of a snowball that happens over the next decade, which is really the more that people leave, the harder the work gets for those who remain. And for those who remain, the conditions just get worse. We're talking about um, you know, multiple days a week where we're working 16, where they're working 16 hour shifts, which is just not sustainable. Um, we have signs, um, you know, 2015, we have the, uh, former Department of Corrections Secretary Ed Wall preparing a, an internal document warning of the dangers to come if this isn't addressed. Uh, a couple of years after that, we have an escape from Columbia Prison, a maximum security prison, um, which staff tied to the chronic staffing shortage. Do you think the legislature, state of Wisconsin, either side, because often the, the party in power, they can move these issues, get things done. Either side paying attention to this issue, do you think? I, you know, the degree to which they were paying attention, I can't, I can't necessarily speak to. But what we can say at the end of the day is these were issues that were taken up. They were issues that were they were aware of. And we have, um, you know, the, the end result, which is no substantive action taken by either party um, until we get to the the point that we are now we got to take a quick break but if you would like to read this story if you've not seen this text prison to the wtmj talk and text line 855-616-1620 and we will send you the link to the story our guest is new york times reporter mario coran we'll be back in just a minute this is spanning the state Welcome back. I am Kristen Bride, Steve Safiti. This is Spanning the State, and we're talking to New York Times local investiga- investigation fellow Mario Coran about the extreme shortage of guards at Wisconsin's prisons. And we only have a couple more minutes with you. So since this article published earlier this month, has there have you noticed any more urgency between Governor Evers or the legislature to start addressing the shortage? Uh, yeah. So, you know, w- w- let's back up to August. So in August, we first published the story, New York Times first published the story that these lockdowns were being used as sort of a man- management tool uh, for not, you know, for not having enough staff. Um, the The response was was more than I expected. There was okay. a lot of, of press coverage around that. And there has been since. Um, and, you know, local outlets across the state have kind of put this to Governor Evers and 
corrections officials. All of that said, um, the bottom line is that the men in Waupon and, to a lesser extent, Green Bay, are still living under the same conditions that they were when we first reported the story. So, you know, while there have been certain statements uh, from the governor in terms of, look, we're hiring more people, we have a large recruitment class, things are going to get better. On the ground, the reports that I have uh, are saying it's more of the same. And just, in fact, over the weekend, excuse me, on Thursday, there was a fourth inmate who who died um, since these lockdowns were put into place. So, you know, the bottom line is men are still dying. I talked to Mayor Ron Bishop about this. I talked to Mayor Ron Bishop about this not too long ago, and, and basically he made this point, which I didn't even think about. The fact that you're understaffed, those people, those individuals who work at the prison, that's part of your local economy. So the fact that they're significantly down in their workforce has a local economic impact. So regardless of what you think about prisons, this is an important factor in the, the thriving of a community that really, let's be honest, they have five prisons in Wuhan. It's a big part of their economy. Oh, sure. That matters too. Yeah, absolutely. And so what drives recruitment as far as, I know we had someone text in about vaccine requirements, but also pay. I know that the last with the budget that got passed last summer, there is an increase in pay, but what are the steps that need to be taken to actually get back to filling some of these vacancies? So pay is a big part of it, right? That's the, you know, the dollar signs attached to this job opportunity that would make people consider it. It's not the only thing. Um, in fact, one important factor in this, in this sort of recruitment, is also retention. And that historically, the Department of Corrections has lost about half of all the people that it brings in the door. The reason that it loses it is, as I've been told, uh, it loses so many people is because once they get in, they see the work conditions, they see that they're obligated overtime, and there's only a certain amount of pay that will force you to stay at a job like that, right? Um, so, so it's kind of chicken or the egg. Absolutely, it's that right now the conditions working there are so rough because there's not enough people so they're having a hard time even retaining the people who are working there absolutely and then you have stories coming out like this it doesn't necessarily paint a positive picture for a potential job recruit other than salary increases for corrections workers what else is potentially on the timeline that could make this problem kind of go away yeah. So importantly, I want, I want to say that nobody that I talked to for the story from either side has proposed pay raises as being a one time sort of one and done solution. Um, even if it was pay raises that that was going to help as a solution, it's something that is going to be have to brought back to the table uh, a number of times as salaries increase across the economy. Right. This is not a one time thing. The other side that hasn't been fully really explored or even articulated by the governor is that when the governor uh, was coming into office, he made a pledge to explore ways to bring down the prison population by half. There really hasn't been a lot of uh, steps taken uh, to reduce the prison population. Um, there really hasn't been uh, a lot of exploration, at least publicly, for, for that side of it. So um, those, these are both two levers that, that could be explored potentially as a solution. Is that same traits? happening in other states? Are they de- having declining prison populations, or what are you seeing? So the a lot of states, the prison populations went down before COVID and, and sort of ticking back up. Wisconsin, as, as, as a state, has done less than other states in terms of considering uh, comprehensive um, criminal justice reform and, and, and reducing the prison population. Does that come back to... This is a an opinion question, so feel free to not, since you are a reporter, feel free not to answer it. But as far as the idea of being soft on crime and the political stances on that, do you think that plays into 
the urgency, the a- action or inaction around this story? Well, I, I, I did pose this question to a number of lawmakers, um, and Darren Madison, uh, from, represented from here in Milwaukee, uh, certainly feels that it does. Um, well, as we see the uh, the elections in 2020, we saw really a, a rebirth of the sort of tough-on-crime rhetoric that had led to some of these more draconian policies back in the 90s. And it became, I guess, once once again politically popular to take this tough-on-crime approach. And so in Darren Madison's view, and I think he has a lot of reasons to, to make this stance, it, it is kind of a return to that um, and and it is almost a political liability or may have been seen as a political liability here, at least here in Wisconsin, to take more uh, drastic steps to really grapple with these issues. Because it was it was this. There was also recently an article of there's a bill on banning shackling pregnant women when they're giving birth. There is we still can give the death penalty to minors. Which I didn't even know 10. that was a thing. I didn't I didn't realize that pregnant women could be shackled. Yes. And, and so there feels like there is a lot surfacing right now and i know that you're continuing to follow this story and this beat so we'd love to have you on as there's more stories about it and i would love to actually talk to you again and have you back on how you got into journalism and following this story but we have to let you go mario coran is a new york times local investigation fellow if you would like to read his story text prison to the wtmj talk and text line 855-616- 1620. Coming up in the next half hour, it's Public Schools Week. We'll be joined by State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Dr. Jill Underly, to talk about that. And this is Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, Sighting Unlimited, WTMJ Newstime, 130. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, here with Steve Scafidi. It's weird being here at 1 o'clock. I know. This is so much later in the day for you. This is my long day. I'm here till 4. But I feel like for all the people who would like more Steve. I just got an email. I know. Seconds ago. There's lots of people who want more Steve. So on Mondays, he will be here every Monday with me. So you basically have promised more Steve. I have promised. And now you've I've delivered. Done my part. Yeah, you've delivered. And if we, I, w- I would have you more days, but I don't know how many days you want to be here, especially with it so nice out. I feel is like you have, a, you have that, golf to go get to. Is it like a job offer? Or what was I don't that? know if I have the control for that. <laughs> I don't think you do. I would like to do is I would like more Steve, too. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll negotiate that. Yeah, exactly. We're good yeah. together. We are. We have fun. So it's public schools week. That's cool. It is cool. And it's interesting. I have all these new experiences now of thinking about the world differently. You're a mom now. Now that I am a mom. Yes. And it's interesting because I always thought I was an empathetic person, but you can't describe just how you start to think about things differently once you have a kid. One of which is where are we going to send her to school? Granted, we have a little while before we have to decide that, but we live in Milwaukee. We're in the MPS school district. Mm -hmm. The conversations around MPS, which MPS schools, because some of the immersion schools that are near us are actually really, really good. And there's talks of what if we we have people who are recruiting us to try to go to Shorewood because that school district is so good. And so it's an inevitable conversation to have when you live in this area as far as where are you going to send your kids to school because it's not just neighborhood schools anymore. It's like one of life's big decisions. One is to have kids. And two, what are you going to do with them when you have them? You have to send them off to kindergarten, which is a huge moment in people's lives. And then the schools, the teachers they have, and as somebody who went to both private and public schools, you appreciate these people. And look, Teaching is tough. I'm married to a teacher. I know mm-hmm. how tough it is, all the challenges, all the trials and tribulations. But at the end of the day, we want our kids to be educated. And I'm a fan of public schools. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to be critical, and we're going to have a, a guest on that could answer some of those questions. But I, I want them to be the best they can be. 
how they spend their money, do they do it wisely, and are they targeting, for me, the most important thing, education. Was Kathy a public school teacher? Yes. Which grade? I know she teaches in uh, the she, tech school now. She taught at almost every level, level but primarily middle school and high school, and, now, and she's uh, post-high school at uh, MATC. Nice. So uh, everything from advanced math to basic math. I always tell people she's way smarter than me. I would have... Which, and I'm assuming she's, I'm, I'm going to go on the assumption that she's good at her job. And she would have she's been great of, at her job. She would have been one of those math teachers who actually makes kids like me who did not like math. Yes. Maybe she like She makes math. it fun. Again, that's part of the, the skill of being a teacher. They're, they're, you have to nuance it for different kids, right? Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, when we come back, we are going to talk about Wisconsin Public Schools for Public Schools Week with State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Dr. Jill Underly. That is coming up next. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, along with Steve Scafidi. And on the phone with us to kick off Public Schools Week is State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Dr. Jill Underly. Dr. Underly, thanks for spending some time with us today. I'm excited to be here. Happy Public Schools Week. Happy Public Schools Week. And so what are some of the themes for Public Schools Week this year? Oh, wow. There's always so many. And it really just kind of emanates from a place of gratitude, right? We have a lot to celebrate um, certainly at the agency, I mean, we're, we're doing things like our strategic plan and we're listening to everybody really statewide to see what they want to see out of our public schools in the next, um, you know, decade or so. But also, you know, just I've been um, celebrating career and tech ed months in February. And so going out and just sharing um, what we're learning from our public schools and all the things they're doing to prepare our kids for their future, right? So there's just so much going on. Gratitude for teachers and administrators and school board, but just certainly I am just blown away by the things our kids are doing in our public schools. And doctor, I'm married to a retired teacher taught at public schools, uh, middle school, high school, math teacher, advanced calculus, something she always throws at me because I'm bad at math. (laughs) But one of the things she always talked about was resources, the resources to be better teachers, stronger teachers, be better better educators. How is that being looked at in in sort of the 10-year plan? Yeah, so, um, you know, that is definitely a focus. When you think about resources, I think the general population thinks, you know, just the the tax dollars, right? Like we we are going to referendum, of course, you know, um, to keep the lights on, that kind of stuff, or to improve our facilities. But resources also are included in teacher pay, right? I mean, these are professionals. They have skills and knowledge, and they care for our kids all day. And we have to make sure that we have the financial resources so we can pay them. We also have to think about resources in professional development. You know, when you think about every profession out there, um, there's always more learning to do, right? To hone a new skill or to imp- like, or to improve a skill that you already have, um, or to just learn the new stuff that's coming through. And um, that is certainly something our school districts crave too, as far as resources, is the the funding so that our teachers can stay up to date with learning. Um, resources for mental health, you know, like we have to look at our schools as places where we have to meet the needs of all kids and meet kids where they are. And when you look at the mental health needs um, and challenges, especially those that have come out of COVID, um, we have to, you know, serve kids where they are, and that's in school. So we always need resources. We are a human resources-rich um, profession, and, um, you know, it's our humans that are providing these services. So we have to make sure they're paid. 
So, Dr. Arnold, since you brought it up, uh, it was not a great week for school referendums last week during the primary. And there's dozens more on April 2nd's ballot. And can you kind of explain what is at stake if the ones in April also don't pass? Yeah, I hate the fact that we have to do this, right? Um, Our schools, you know, need the money um, because we're not getting the same percentages that we used to get from the state. When you look at the rate of inflation, for example, the cost of business has gone up. People demand higher wages or they, you know, find other jobs. We're competing with private industry. Our teachers have transferable skills. But just the regular maintenance of our buildings. I mean, when a lot of these buildings are built, you know, roofs and, you know, all those things like in our own homes, they they go, um, they don't last forever. And so the cost of everything has gone up. And what's at stake is that our school districts will try to find ways to make ends meet, right, so that we don't have to cut programs. And so we defer maintenance. But if we get to a point where we can no longer defer maintenance and referendums continue to fail, um, we have to cut programs. That's really the long and short of it. And I hate that it's almost like we are holding these things hostage, right? Like pass the referendum or we lose these programs. But that's just the, the real um, experience that our school districts are going through because the state hasn't kept up their end of the bargain um, and funded our schools. One of the things that we talk about, I talk about on my show, is, is the impact of COVID, the pandemic on education. And, and it's been measured. It's been talked about, certainly. What kind of pro- progress are we making on some of the the achievement losses, even even in the, the area of what we're teaching in, in relation to the pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we want every kid to see, be successful, right? We want them to have every opportunity, and we want them to get what they need in the way they need it. And we have to do that through assessments. Um, you know, the standardized test scores are one point among many, um, and things are trending up. I mean, our test results are trending up. Our test participation rates are up. And yet we have not reached our desired destination. So even if we were back exactly to where we were before the pandemic, we wouldn't be satisfied there either. So we just have to continue to keep our focus where it needs to be, meeting our kids where they're at, focusing on getting those needs met. When you look at other things, though, that impact test scores, you have to look at um, are kids ready to learn? Are they showing up to school ready? Um, You think about our own selves, right? Are we getting good nutrition? Are we getting enough sleep? Are we fully engaged. And so that's why at the agency, we have really advocated for things like school breakfast and school lunch and universal meals. We've advocated for mental health um, services for all kids. We've advocated for things like full day 4K. Like we know these things work and therefore it'll transform. And it has, I mean, studies show, um, for example, with 4K and and nutrition, if we are providing these programs, kids are their best selves and that's a, you know, they're going to do better on tests. But just to go back to that, it's just one data point among many. And of course we want them to do well and we want to use that information, but we also have to make sure that they are getting what they need so they can be their best selves. Dr. Underly, we only have about time for one more question because I know there's a big change happening with literacy and reading. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the change that's happening as far as going back to phonics and the science of reading? 
Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, We know that developing reading skills is critical to a child's academic success and their future life success. And I'm really excited about this work because this is real bipartisan work. This is a great example of people coming together from different political viewpoints to do what's best for kids, right? It's advocating and advancing for good policy. And that's the policy nerd in me, as also the parent in me, too, wanting to make sure that we're doing what's right for kids. Um, You know, certainly some students have experienced challenges with literacy, and we know that early intervention and effective instruction is pivotal to their development in this subject. So that's why we worked, the DPI worked to collaborate with legislators um, to reimagine really what way literacy is taught to students in our schools. So Act 20, it's great for kids because it's a plan to make sure that we're doing our jobs to reach every student and help them reach their literacy goals. And if I didn't say it already, I'm really excited about where it's going. Well, I'm also excited. I'm excited to follow how that's going to work in practice, how it's going to be measured. But happy Public Schools Week, Dr. Underly, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Yeah, happy Public Schools Week. It's so exciting. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State, or the end of Spanning the State. I am your host, version today. Kristen Bry. That is Steve Scafidi. Yeah, this goes way faster when it's just an hour. So How the, are you adjusting to that? Oh, it's fine. i got to be here until 4 any day, and every Monday anyway. So no, I know, but as far as how fast an hour goes for you now. It goes, well, After five fast. years of doing three hours. Yeah, it's, I used to have three and a half, actually. Oh, yeah. It goes very fast. It's you know We only talk for half of that, probably. Um, you get used to it. It makes your questions more urgent. Um, there's a lot more uh, pace that you have to maintain. There's a lot more urgency to getting to the break. So all nuts and bolts stuff, the audience, um, I think, is more focused because we have very specific things to talk about. For me, it's politics. For you, it's the states. The state. I love that. I love the mix. What are you doing tomorrow? Like for fun or? <laughs> <laughs> On your show. I've got two political writers. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, also for fun. You're watching more true crime tomorrow? Yeah, I'm, I'm hooked on true crime, which which is a problem I'm going to have to deal with. My, my friend is Carol, it giving you nightmares? No, because I don't. I never have nightmares. Okay, it doesn't uh, keep you up at night as far as no. Kathy potentially no plotting no. against you. Do you not listen to my ads for Advent? I sleep like a baby, Kristen. <laughs> it's all about the partner. Um, look, I am doing Tuesday's my political writer, so I have James Wagerson on the right, Dan Schaefer on the left. Not not at the same time though. No. Okay. They can't, they can't be in the same room. They can't be. In the same room. <laughs> Is that true, you think? I don't think so. No. No. Well, you had Dan on last week. And Dan will be on again Thursday. I'm not sure, Dan. I The more I've met Wisconsin public figures, the more I'm not sure any of them, I would deserve that of any of them, of saying, oh, you can't put them in the same room. You maybe know more than I do as far as people who refuse to be in the same room as another person. I know about three or four tops. All of them were, are not elected officials right now. All of them are failed candidates. Oh. So, and you could probably guess who they are. So, no. <laughs> And sometimes I want to just focus on what that person has to say. So there's not really not a reason. I'll, I'll occasionally mix them. I had two um, uh, local writers, uh, Spakuza and uh, Jesse O'Poy, and they were great together. So, yeah, I'll mix it up. You'll mix it up. So do you think this is – did I pass the audition? Of course. Oh, you passed okay. last week. I feel like last oh, week was one of the most fun any... shows. And you got wine last week. So I feel like you. this is the kind of things you're going to get if you come back, keep on coming on my show. Well, if you can promise wine every week, I'm outside Do you guys our... open it yet? No, it's Easter. Oh, you're yeah. going to save it for Easter. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm also saving it for my mom because I feel like she's going to appreciate it. I love the note your mom wrote this week. She enjoyed the the new lineup last week. She did enjoy the new lineup. She's a big fan. Give her my best. I will. She was on my show. 
All right, coming up tomorrow, Brian Noonan from WTMJ at night will be co-hosting with me. We'll talk about how teacher apprenticeship programs might alleviate our teacher shortage. And uh, we'll hear some of the most interesting exotic pet stories uh, from JNR Aquatic Animal Rescue in Nina, Wisconsin. This is Spanning the State, Brewers Baseball, coming up next.